Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Today, Donald Savoie, author of Thanks for the Business. The business section of bookstores is jammed with ghost-written autobiographies of self-promoting entrepreneurs. The subjects generally promise to share tips on how to become as successful as they are, brag about their deal-making savvy, and might even admit to a few miscues along the way just to give themselves a gloss of humanity. But some entrepreneurs and business people shun public attention. Their customers and competitors are left to draw conclusions from their interactions with the big names. Donald Savoie has applied his deep knowledge of Atlantic Canada's economic development to exploring the entrepreneurial force of two of the region's biggest names, who've somehow managed to remain rather enigmatic figures. Dr. Savoie's latest book is entitled Thanks for the Business, Casey Irving, Arthur Irving, and the Story of Irving Oil. I've reached him at his office in Moncton. Welcome to Book Me. Thanks for having me, Costas, and thanks for those kind words. Now, in the preface and in part of the introduction, you explained what your book was not going to be about. So with a book about a family as prominent and, and private and controversial as the Irvings, which potential readers will you disappoint? Well, readers who um, are looking for uh, information or material on family feuds, on splits in the family, divorces, uh, I don't go there at all. I decided to write a book about business development, about economic development, about my region, my communities, and what the Irvings have done for my region. And uh, I stopped at that. I leave it to others to write a biography, to write uh, about family feuds. That's not what I am. Never written about that. I did the book on Harrison McKean. I avoided that that book. And so my focus is strictly on business development, economic development, and what it means for my region. You also mentioned you have a personal friendship with Arthur Irving. Does that create a, a problem for you as a writer, that you might have the blinkers on to a certain extent? A very good question, uh, Costas. A very legitimate question. And I asked myself that very question. And I thought, if I were to, which is one of the reasons I've avoided writing about anything else but business development and economic development, had I gone beyond that, I would have been accused of being fairly biased. And it would have been quite correct, because I, I am a friend of ours. I am a friend of Sandra. I am a friend of Sarah. And so I, I deliberately avoided dealing with those issues, trying to stick to facts about business development, about you know how they grew the business, what it meant to grow it from St. John. So by limiting my interests to those forces, I think I was able to deal with the bias problem. Now, many people assume the empire begins with K.C. Irving. I knew that his father had been a successful businessman in Bucktouche, uh, your hometown, with a general store and lumber operations and farms. But I wasn't aware that Casey's grandfather, Herbert Irving, was a major entrepreneur as early as the mid-19th century. Quite correct. He started it. Uh, his father had come from Scotland. It was a very difficult time. He had uh, left Scotland after the Napoleonic War, and there was a uh, deep depression in Scotland, northern England, so he made his way to Rishabuktu. Uh, there was pamphlets saying, you know, it's uh, God's country and so on. When he arrived there, he had to go upriver about 15 miles. And it wasn't the promised land that he uh, was led to believe. Farming was difficult. And so he had a rough go. He had 10 children. 
But Herbert, his son, did a number of things. He uh, bought a farm, grew a farm, bought another farm, uh, built a lumber mill. Uh, in fact, he uh, actually had mortgages. People who wanted to buy a house, certainly build a house, they went to him because they couldn't go to the bank. There was hardly any financial institutions in that area. So he was both a banker, an entrepreneur, a lumber, a lumberman, a farmer. He started it all. And when he passed away, uh, his son, J.D., took over and expanded the business quite considerably. And then his son, in turn, Casey Irving, expanded it even more. It's quite interesting, you know, young KC, still in his 20s, installed gas pumps in front of uh, his father's general store, began selling Ford cars, and in short order, the store and the gas and the car businesses ran into very strong competition, a, a kind of perfect storm for a young entrepreneur. Tell us what there was in his response to that that really foreshadows what he would become. You're quite correct, because... The betting was the general store was going to go belly up, like many general stores around that era, because Eaton's had just moved into the Maritimes with a major office in Moncton, nearby Moncton. They had a catalog, and people started buying from the catalog, and general stores were going under. And certainly, uh, one of um, half-brothers to Casey bailed out, said, this is not going to work out. But Casey was not about to back down, said, so one thing we can do that Eaton's cannot do is sell gas. So he installed a, a gas tank uh, in front of his father's store. He installed a gas tank in back of a truck and started pumping gas. And he saw people buying gas and needed a car. So he got the Ford franchise, uh, started selling Ford, and he was became so successful at selling Fords and booked towards the Moncton dealer who had the dealership for Moncton went to Ford and said, look, this guy's creating problems. He's selling cars out of his jurisdiction. He's selling cars in Chidiac. That ought to be my area. So you got to do something with this guy. So Ford went to him and said, you can move to Halifax or St. John, but you can't stay in Booktoosh to sell Ford. So he chose St. John because it was closer. It was closer to Booktoosh. And it became part of his pattern that whenever he was threatened by the big boys, as he called them, he took them on. Imperial Oil, or Esso, tried to run him out of business. But he said, no, I can do something that they can't. Much like he did in the case of Eaton's, he came up with a process that Eaton's could not do. He said, what I can do against the big boys is to provide a better level of service. And so Irving Oil is the first to have both men and women bathrooms in their service stations. He did a number of things that outperform the big boys in terms of delivering services. That became a code word for businesses of all the Irvings. It became what you refer to as the Irving School of Business. Yes, and there's a number of things in that Irving School of Business. I mean, there are a number of things that the Irvings do uh, that have turned them into very successful business people. Quality of service is paramount. Loyalty to employees is paramount. Giving the extra effort is paramount. The old saying that Arthur said to his employees, look, we're in a baseball game, we're down 3-2 to two at the bottom of the night, we gotta hit. We got to hit a home run. So there's a competitive edge uh, that's been part of the corporate culture because they view they view themselves as a, as a David uh, and the Goliath is all the big boys. And bear in mind, you know, we, we Maritimers and we New Brunswickers look at Irving Oil and say that's a pretty massive company. Well, it is by New Brunswick standard, by maritime standards, but by world standard, it's not. It's a minor player. I mean, the big players are Shell, BP, Stewart's are the big players. They own oil reserves. Irving Oil does not. And so Irving Oil has to do what Casey did, is to find a way, find a niche to outperform the big boys. Well, Casey's family, as we've outlined, had been big fish in the Bucktouche pond for a few generations. What ultimately motivated him to move to St. John and, and grow his empire from there? Well, he didn't have a choice. 
Ford told him, you, you've got to move. You can't stay there. So to stay in business, he had to find another outfit. Now, he looked at Halifax and looked at St. John, and New Brunswickers can be thankful that he picked St. John because he would have been a success story in Halifax as well, no question about that. In St. John, he felt that pretty deeply. He felt like they viewed him as a country bumpkin from the backwoods of Kent County. And the big business leaders of the day in St. John, the Robinson and so on. In fact, Robinson said, we're going to drive that Irving boy back to Bookdosh. Uh, he was not really accepted amongst the elite in St. John, and he felt it dearly. That's not the case with his sons, J.K. and Arthur and so on, but he did. And he always went back to Bookdosh. He always felt that it was one place in the world where he felt at home was in Bookdosh. had deep, deep ties to the Bookdosh community. Now you, uh, an Oxford-educated scholar at a university, and the Irvings, hard-driving capitalists with uh, global interests, are of one mind when it comes to Ottawa's policies towards Atlantic Canada. What shaped your views? Well, I tell you, Costas, one of the things I discovered that I, I honestly did not know truly. When I started researching this, you know, for this book and looking at speeches and looking at uh, statements that Casey Irving made over the years, is how deeply committed he was to the Maritimes. A, and B, how he understood that national policies played havoc with the Maritime provinces. And he fought against it. And he saw the flaws in, you know, in national policies that he, in order to succeed in St. John, in the Maritimes, he had to pull against gravity. Gravity, by by definition, is is in Ontario and Quebec. The national government is in Ottawa. The national federal public services leadership uh, is on the border between Ontario and Quebec. Canada's political club is Ontario and Quebec because that's where the votes are. And we're the only federation in the world that doesn't have a capacity in this national institution to speak on behalf of the smaller regions. And so we have what we have. We have national policies designed for Ontario and Quebec. Let me give you an example. During the Second World War, they needed to build ships. The British came to Canada and the Americans came to military people and they said you should build ships in Halifax. Well actually the ships were built in Toronto and in one year they barely escaped the ice jam up in the St. Lawrence Seaway. They had to stop in Halifax to get repaired on the way so that they could go on. There was one case amongst many but one case where geography favored the maritime provinces and even at that point it didn't work out. So Casey Irving saw that. He saw that with the Chicago Canal and he, he decided to fight against it, to pull against gravity. During the, the war, uh, he did get a, a bit of the business with Canada Veneer, making basically plywood for those uh, mosquito planes. Yeah, and it was a very lucrative deal. He had the factory humming, I think, 24 hours a day. He also built a capacity to landing crafts. Some of them were built in Bukhtosh. He had the contract for that. But in percentage terms, we had a minuscule uh, part of the war effort, minuscule. To underline your point, uh, although Casey Irving owned Canada Veneer, the actual planes were built in Ontario, the mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah. it could have been easily built here. The whole national structure is designed for Ontario and Quebec. That's how Confederacy came to pass. It was designed by Ontario and Quebec for Ontario and Quebec. And what I and I've been I, that's been part of my writing. That's been part of my work. I did the report for Brian Mulroney and establishment of Ottawa, and, and it's been part of who I am. It's been an important part of my work. And when I discovered that Casey Irving felt exactly the same way and saw the flaws, it really captured my interest. You say in the book that you buy your groceries from Sobeys, your chocolates from Ganong's, French fries from McCain's, and gas from Irving's. But aside from your consumer choice to keep the money circulating here in this region, you talk about the importance of the Atlantic Canadian economy having head offices located here. How important are head offices? They are critically important. Critically important. Because head offices is where decisions are struck. 
if you close an operation, you, you're going to make that decision as head office, and it's never going to be head office. If you're going to hire lawyers, accountants, and professionals, you're going to do it from head office, not from a regional office. And so we have very few. We have the Irvings, Irving Oil, GDI, John Bragg, East Link, Blueberry Business, but we don't have many. But they are a godsend. They're terribly important to the economic structure of any region, and especially in our region because we have so few. Arthur Irving did become head of Irving Oil, and like his father, KC, uh, he always seems to be more comfortable talking with people on the ground floor of the business. And in turn, as with his father, and I, I heard plenty of anecdotes growing up in St. John about people on the ground floor who felt quite comfortable picking up the phone and getting put through to the top dog. Uh, you, you cite an example from as recently as 2019 of, of Frank Gallant, a gas dealer in Moncton, going directly to Arthur about a problem. Tell us about that. Well, Frank Gallant's got a nerving oil station in Moncton. Uh, he's doing okay. He's an entrepreneur. He, too, has to pull against gravity because he's dealing with a larger shuttle operation not far from where he is. He's got a general store. And so uh, government regulations said, you know, your your gas tanks need to be upgraded because if you don't, it's going to cost you a lot more for insurance and on and on and on. And Frank, you know, he's 70 years old, and he the investment was pretty substantial, I think, two or 300000 So he had a problem and nobody was really there to help him so he was either finding a solution or going out of business so he called arthur irving arthur took the call uh, heard the problem and arthur says yeah i get it we're going to fix it and frank is still in business because he had direct access now i understand afterwards that head office people were kind of annoyed with that that frank would contact arthur directly they would have preferred he had gone through a head office but that's who frank is and that's who arthur irving is But there's an element of micromanaging in that kind of behavior. And I I can also see problems for morale of those middle managers that people can skip through and talk to Arthur. Well, I think that's become part of the corporate culture. There's no question that, uh, you know, Arthur for a long time, and people told me this, executives at Irving Oil, for a long time, he would sign every check, $1,000 and over. And Arthur did that because he wanted to understand fully the details of the business. And so the executives knew that. And they respected that. I've talked to you know to a lot of them. I don't think it creates a problem. You know, it is what it is, and he is who he is, and they've learned to deal with it. You've already alluded to the the David and Goliath uh, frame for some of these stories in which uh, Casey or Arthur fought very formidable corporate competitors, even the federal government on occasion. But you know, for living memory in New Brunswick, they've been the Goliaths. How can entrepreneurs in in that province grow if they inevitably come up against Irving interests and enterprises and, I guess, even the, you know, they have a legendary taste for litigation? Well, that's a good question, and I I can assure you that if you're you're in Woodstock or in uh, Yarmouth and you look at Irving Oil, they're the big boys. There's no question. If you're running a... uh, a general store in Heartland, New Brunswick, and you get a gas pump in front of your store, you look at Irving Oil and say, geez, uh, how can I compete with these guys? If you're in head office at Irving Oil in St. John and you look at BP and you look at Shell, you say, oh, these are the big boys. How can I compete with them? So it's a question of perspective. I think too much has been made of Irving GDI or Irving Oil crushing small entrepreneurs. I frankly haven't seen much of that. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur. My brother was an entrepreneur. They had a number of businesses. My brother's family still does. They've never come up against, you know, Irving. If he get in the oil business, yeah, he's gonna feel he's gonna feel the competition. 
But the Irvings, however big they are, they're not in every sector. And what I find is that often somebody, an entrepreneur who goes into business and fails, rather than look in the mirror, will say, well, I feel because the Irvings are too big. That becomes a handy alibi for not succeeding in business. But I don't think they've been nearly as negative on the business climate that some people make it out to be. If you look at the literature on entrepreneurship, they always say that uh, a community needs a big enterprise or two or three. It gives rise to a lot of a lot of new businesses. I would remind you that Harrison McCain worked for Casey Irving for five years. Wallace McCain worked for Casey Irving for five and a half years. And they went out, started a business, and built the biggest French fry company in the world. They're not the only examples. There are a number of other examples that they learned, you know, their business skills, their entrepreneurial skills, working with, you know, Casey Irving. Just finally, uh, Dr. Savoie, of, of the many challenges that Irving Oil has faced, there's really now an existential one. Uh, the pressure is for the world to shift from a carbon-based economy to one that holds out some hope for dealing with the, the growing effects of climate change. Arthur won't be around to navigate that transition, but his heir apparent, Sarah, the executive vice president and chief brand officer, Will. What did Arthur say about the future of Irving Oil in this environment? Well, I asked Arthur at one point, I said, Arthur, do you think of climate change and what it means for the business? His answer, quick, every single day. And so they're on to this. Sarah's on to this. They made a number of progress in making their gas friendlier to the environment. That's not to say it's not without issues, but friendlier than the competition. And that's been documented. But they know what's coming. I stopped it at the Nerving Service Station not too long ago, outside of Halifax, actually. And there was about 20 Tesla charging stations. And so Irving Oil has signed an agreement with Tesla that they will run all of the Tesla charging stations in Atlantic Canada. All of them. Uh, It's an agreement. And what does that mean? Does it mean that they'll make a lot of money selling electricity? Not nearly as much as, as one might think. But what it does mean is that when you're charging your car 20 minutes, you're going to go into the store. You're going to buy a coffee. You're going to buy a donut. You're going to buy a pop. You're going to buy a newspaper or whatever. And the profit margin on a coffee is pretty high. They know it's coming. They're getting ready for it. When a Tesla stops to charge up, it will be at a nerving service station. Donnell Savoy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on Book Me. Well, Costas, I have to tell you, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. We've been at it for a long time. Let's keep it up. Thank you for having me. Donnell Savoy is the author of Thanks for the Business, Casey Irving, Arthur Irving, and the Story of Irving Oil. It's published by Nimbus. If you'd like to comment on a podcast like today's with Donald Savoie, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. If you want to hear more conversations with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, we have a lot, all on bookmepodcast.ca. Tell everyone you know who's a reader. And whenever we add a new interview, we post an alert on Instagram at bookmepodcast. If you're in the Lunenburg County area, Nova Scotia, you can hear one of our podcasts every evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU, 93.7 FM, just before sign off around 9 o'clock. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. Our producer is Robin Grant. And thanks for the digital business you handle so well, Laura Hines. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. <laughs> <laughs>